Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Myla Kim. And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In every episode, you'll hear from authors of color as they share about the inspiring stories that led to the making of their books, as well as the challenges they had to endure and overcome along the way. Myla Kim, how are you doing? I am doing good. But if I'm completely honest, I have some mixed feelings going on today because this is the last episode of season one. Ah, I know how you feel. I feel the same way. And I guess all good things must come to an end. But at least we have this last episode to share with our listeners to end the season. And it's a great one. We have not just one and not just two, but no. we have three different authors three. of color three yeah, authors. to hear from. <laughs> yeah, and they are all writers of our Enneagram Daily Reflection series. And we also have a special guest for our Behind the Book segment, the amazing Suzanne Stabile, Woo-hoo. the Enneagram godmother herself. So we will be learning a lot about the Enneagram on this episode. Speaking of the Enneagram, Ed, do you know your number? You know you're not supposed to ask that, right? (laughs) Do you want to tell me anyways? (laughs) Well, last I heard, I'm a nine. But I don't know how I feel about the peacekeeping thing. I'm not sure. And why is that? Because you're a troublemaker? Well, I'll let you decide. <laughs> <laughs> I, I affirm that statement. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to ask you your number, but any uh, tea to spill there? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm a three. And being able to speak with Sean Palmer, I really resonated with a lot of what he shared as a three. So I'm pretty sure I'm a three. Well, we're going to find out a lot about your personality today then, I guess. huh? Yeah, we are going to get to talk about topics such as where did the Enneagram come from? Are we even allowed to use it? Is it even Christian? So we're going to talk a lot about that on this episode. And then next season, we'll pick up the conversation again with even more authors of color in this series. So that's something to look forward to in season two. For now, let's dive into this episode, this supersized season finale. (laughs) We hope you all enjoy these conversations with Sean Palmer, Marlena Graves, and Gideon Sang from IVP's Enneagram Daily Reflection Series. Excited to welcome Sean Palmer, author of 40 Days of Being a Three, to the Every Voice Now podcast today. Welcome, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited to have you here. As an Enneagram 3 myself, I'm biased. This is probably the most exciting interview I will be part of. (laughs) So (laughs) before we even start talking about the Enneagram, can you tell us a little bit about your personal backstory? So where you grew up, share with our listeners your family origin. I said in my very first book, Unarmed Empire, I think it's chapter two begins that say, telling the story of Steve Martin movie, The Jerk. And at the beginning of that movie, Steve Martin narrates and he says, I was born a poor black child in Mississippi. <laughs> and I've always loved that line because I was born a poor black child in Mississippi. <laughs> so 1974, I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. We moved, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade. We moved to um, Atlanta, Georgia, and I grew up in Stone Mountain, Graduated from Stone Mountain High School. Stone Mountain was an armory for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Martin Luther King Jr. mentioned Stone Mountain in his I Have a Dream speech. Then I went to college in Abilene, Texas. That's how I ended up in Texas at Abilene Christian University. I was raised in non-denominational denomination called Churches of Christ. Can you tell us a little bit about what you currently do in Houston? 
I am the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston, which is here in Houston, multi-site church. So it's just been kind of one of those long journeys of ministry. I started in youth ministry and then worked into kind of an associate's position and started preaching. And we've been back in Houston about three and a half now. So let's talk a little bit more about your ethnic identity journey. Can you share with us your relationship between your ethnic identity and your journey as a writer? I was not ever a big reader when I was a kid, when I was an adolescent and growing up. And, uh, but I liked the books that I liked. And in high school, I started reading. And when I say big reader, I say that in contrast to my daughters who just are voracious readers who burn through books and always have. And I've always been a slow reader, but I always knew that I wanted to write. No one ever told me that I was any good at it. I had zero encouragement. Even in eighth grade, I was chairman of this little after school group. We did three publications a year and I had some illustrations in that and I wrote some things, never any encouragement. Even in college, I went to college. I would think I turned in something really profound and great and I'd get a C. And I would still argue with people, I am a C plus writer. And if I work really, really hard, I can be a B writer. But that didn't change anything. Then blogging came along and I said, I'm going to just start a blog. So I started out, when I started out doing the blog, I said, I'm going to do five days a week. And then it started to kind of pick up steam. And obviously, the more you do anything, the better you get. This whole thing was to write a book. But then the idea comes about what's this book going to be about? And the central driving force of my life has always been the church. And I had these lingering aromas in my life about the church of my youth. And it was the most racially diverse place that I've ever been in my life. That vision really captured me. And it's one of the things that I've never been able to reproduce or I've never seen anywhere else in all of my life. So that has been um, you know, 40 years ago now. I ended up spending a good bit of my life, the rest of my adolescence, in predominantly white churches and spaces. And so it's always been kind of a driver within me to recapture that vision and that experience that I had as a little boy. And I remember very clearly the language of that church, that it was always brother so-and-so and and sister so It's very familial. Because I am this hybrid creation of historically black churches, but being raised in those really crucial years of junior high and high school in white churches, like one of the places that I feel like I can serve the kingdom best is merging the horizons and serving as a translator for some of those people. And when you look at the headlines, uh, I don't know that there's been a better time, a more needed time for people to serve in those spaces. Uh, Because of my backstory, I have access to thinking and people in places that not everybody has access to. And I want to leverage that for the kingdom. Let's talk about the Enneagram. Where does that come in? When and how did you discover this tool called the Enneagram? But I I knew it was kind of like this thing that was out there that a lot of people, particularly progressive Christians at that time, 15 years ago, were really into. It didn't stay on my horizon. And then I don't know, maybe eight years ago, nine years ago, um, I was teaching out for, for a week. I was teaching at Pepperdine University for an event they have there. And Ian Cron was also presenting out there. And I had just finished Ian's book, Jesus, the CIA and me. And we connected because we had a couple of mutual friends and something was going on. He didn't have anything to do one night. And neither did I. And I said, well, let's go have, let's go have dinner. And so we kind of hit it off. 
talked a little bit. We had a great conversation. Then that went nowhere. And I got a call from a mutual friend of mine and Ian's. And he says, Ian wants to know if you're interested in coming to this retreat type thing in um, Greenwich, Connecticut next year. And I didn't know what it was about. I was like, I like Ian. I like you. It sounds like a cool group of people. I'm in. And the night before everything gets started, we're going to have like a reception just sort of a get to know you thing. And I sit down next to this couple that I had no idea who they were. They were the, uh, the oldest people in their room because all of the attendees, I think at that time, were in their mid to late 30s, early 40s, maybe. And I sit down next to this couple and this woman introduces herself to me and she goes, hi, my name is Suzanne. This is my husband, Joe. And so we kind of kick around and we talk about, you know, what you do with those things, mutual pe- connections that you know. But I still had no clue, no clue at all who she was after that night. Just just a lady who was there. And she, the next morning, Ian gets up and he's, uh, I look on the schedule for the whole of the next day. The, the schedule just says Enneagram work. That's all it says. Suzanne gets up and teaches the next day. And I, I, I would tell people I had the best introduction to the Enneagram that anyone possibly ever could because I was in this room with just an, an inc- like 30 of the most remarkable people that I've ever met that, that truly that weekend changed the course of my life just from the standpoint of relationships that were made and just getting like this, the, the access to the teaching in that kind of community. And, you know, I think probably in the room where I sit right now, there are somewhere near 30 Enneagram books. Wow. Um, but that's how my journey started. And now you're a contributor to this great series from, of Enneagram devotionals from IVP, which is amazing. And you are, let's go here now, you're a number three, and you write about being a three. So give our listeners a quick rundown about the aspects of being an Enneagram three. Just what does that mean? So threes are called the achiever, um, typically in the Enneagram world. And so we are motivated. And I always want to remind people when we're talking about Enneagram, we're talking about motivation, not behavior. We are motivated chiefly by a fear of failure, but it comes across more acutely as a drive to succeed. Um, and a drive to look successful. Um, We are in the feeling triad, which means that we receive, we take in the world through the lens of feelings. We take in a lot of information from verbal cues, video, visual cues from people about how they're feeling, but we don't use feelings to make decisions or to move forward because we are in the aggressive stance, which means that we are feeling repressed. So we are both feeling dominant and feeling repressed. Threes tend to be hardworking. They tend to find themselves in leadership positions because they project confidence and are motivated by accomplishment. Threes often leave out feelings in terms of their own feelings. So they're disassociated from their own feelings because they don't believe fundamentally that feelings matter in this decision-making process, or they don't matter for what we are going to do moving ahead. I want to ask, when you found out that you were an Enneagram 3, what was your reaction to it? Were you excited, like, I'm a 3? Or were you, I don't know, was that hard to take in? What was that experience like? It's, it's a little bit of both. So 3s have a great fear of being exposed, that someone's going to see past the image into vulnerability. 
And so there's part of it that when you hear your number presented and you go, oh, that's me, there's a quickly arises a worry. Like, have other people known this and not told me? Or have I not been successful in shielding that from people? But aggressive numbers, three, sevens, and eights, tend to like their numbers when they hear it, right? So where other, where other numbers cower in the corner when they hear their number presented, um, threes tend to like their number and threes tend to think when they hear their number, of course, why isn't everyone like this? Hmm. Like, or wouldn't the world be better if everyone was like this? Hmm. And, and because we're, in a, we're Americans, it's a very three culture. Every successories, every motivational poster, those are all centered through every, every advertisement getting you to buy a planner or something like that. Right. Threes came up with that. And this is why 40 Days of Being a Three is a really important book for the Enneagram discussion, as are all the books in the Enneagram Daily Reflection line, because everyone presents the Enneagram when they're doing the entire circle, when they're going around the circle from their number, right? And so I have been in a room where an eight presented something like Know Your Number, and they are so incredibly sympathetic to eights. And they'll spend like an hour talking about eights and like 15 minutes talking about fives, right? Or they're relating things back to their number. And we all do this, right? And so when threes are typically presented, there's a reason why people say threes kind of hang their head when they hear their number or feel bad. That's because they take a lot of criticism from the people presenting because there actually is, I believe, a lot of cultural resentment about things that are very natural to threes because we do live in a three culture. Everybody just projects their own resentments of their boss or, a, a, you know, someone who's encouraging them to, to move faster or lose weight or to, you know, whatever heart onto like, Oh, it's been the threes who've been doing this to me the whole time. <laughs> and so to hear your number from someone who is that number and to say, this is a problem, this, this aspect of our compulsions is a genuine problem, mm-hmm. but this is a genuine beauty. If you're, if you're starting a new project in life that you're nervous about, the first person you need to tell that to is a three, mm-hmm. because she will cheerlead you like no one else. They will believe in you like no one else. And that's the beauty of the Enneagram Daily Reflections uh, series, I think, is that people get to learn about their number from someone who is that number. That's sort of connected to a question I had for you about being a three. I'm just curious, how has it shaped your ministry or how you approach ministry? Threes have to deal with the fact that most of us are really good at a few things. Are we doing it because we're doing it for virtuous reasons, for a greater good, for the kingdom of God, or are we really just wanting to show off? And the best thing that can happen to you is failure. So you asked me how I got to know the Enneagram, and I've had many conversations with people about this. Like I had an incredibly huge public failure in my denomination about four years before, five years before I came to know the Enneagram and just about everyone that I know that teaches the Enneagram, who knows it really well, who I've dialogued with about my own story has told me you would not have been um, receptive to the Enneagram if it had happened before a major failure. 
And so I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in the, uh, the teaching virtuousness of failure, though I really would prefer to never fail again. <laughs> That's good. Well, let's talk about the Enneagram and its intersection with your identity, um, your ethnic identity. So I'm curious, are there ways that the Enneagram has helped you understand your ethnic background or vice versa? What's that relationship been like? I think the Enneagram has helped me understand in terms of race and identity. I don't know that I was born a three or I was made a three. So, you know, I, I tell the story in one of my books about my, my dad, the kind of the punchline ultimate story is that my dad was the, when he was a boy, was a paper boy for um, Medgar Evers and was his paper boy when he was assassinated by Byron Dale Beckwith in Mississippi. And Medgar Evers was a civil rights leader. And so my dad um, grew up as a child of the civil rights movement, but he instilled in both me and my older brother, Richard, um, the one thing that we have in common more than anything else is that we work. We work, 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 work. I think every black male of my age has heard, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much, right? Mm -hmm. to, to go half as far. You have to be twice as good. And all of those things played as tapes in my mind for throughout my life. To be received as competent, you had to commit to being successful. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, for good or for ill, that growing up um, African-American in the South was this drive to overcome and succeed mm -hmm. and to bulldoze your way through obstacles, So which requires setting feelings aside. Right. And so if... Sean Palmer is born in Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm Caucasian. Do I end up an Enneagram three in the same way? I don't know, but I know that definitely where I was raised, when I was raised, had a huge effect on creating that sort of inner drive hmm. to accomplish and achieve. Yeah, that's really interesting. Your environment, your father, learning how those things could even have shaped you. That's really interesting. And can you speak on even being an Enneagram 3 as a black man? How do you think that's different from being an Enneagram 3 as a white man, an Asian woman? How is it unique to your experience? So to begin with, everyone code switches. So... um I was on a call last week, for instance, about the same time, there were about 15 of us and it was all African-American pastors in predominantly white churches. And when we talk together, the tenor of the conversation is completely different. The language, the diction of the conversation is very different versus who I am like when I go to work, which our church staff is extraordinarily diverse. But when you're a three, I, what threes do is they're code switching all of the time. So what might happen, you know, like Ed in a um, executive team meeting, for instance, sounds different than Ed at the barbecue at mom's house. Right. <laughs> You're reading my um, mail here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but threes are doing that all of the time. I, that's probably like close as I can get to her ethnic minorities is that I don't know if code switching helped me be a better three or if being a three helped me better to code switch, but it's all sort of in there together and minority populations 
are having to code switch all of the time. We know how to function and succeed now in majority white spaces. And I think one of the things that our white friends and neighbors, people who we love very much need to know is that unless the dynamics change, like you're only getting part of us in this engagement. That's not always bad. When people complain to me all the time, well, I just don't feel like I can bring my full self to this. And I was like, that's fine. Like, we don't need your full self. <laughs> if you hire an Uber driver, like you just need them to drive, <laughs> right? I don't need to know your whole, and that's a very three thing to say. <laughs> like, why do, we, why do we need all this? Yeah, I, I think there's an interplay there that I've yet to untangle. But one of the great things about uh, the Enneagram Daily Reflections book that I've heard from people who know me is they said, like, I am so glad that you wrote this book because you are the most three, three that I know and or, or the most healthiest three that I know. I don't know if that's right on the healthy part, but I am probably in the best way typical of mm-hmm. what an Enneagram three is. And I, and I don't think that's a bad thing. That's what people get shocked at. I'm not trying to get out of being a three. The Enneagram Daily Devotionals, this series, one thing that's unique about it is how many people of color are part of authoring this series. And I think that was a very intentional decision. And so I'm curious, what does it mean to you that you are one of the few Black authors writing about the Enneagram currently on the market, I I believe? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I think it's really great. And I actually received a question about this on Twitter last night because someone was like, I'm really interested in the Enneagram, but when I look at sort of top tier Enneagram material, it's all coming from one um, cultural and racial perspective and someone tagged me in their question. Mm -hmm. And so I was like super excited, right? IVP has done this really great job of bringing a bunch of different voices together. I'm honored by that to be in that company of people and they're just amazing folks. I think truly, like of all the people, all nine numbers, I bring the least to the table as a fully functioning human being um, because they're all really great people. That's not a. You can't say that as a three. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's not a three thing to say. We're just kidding. Not like I'm genuinely honored to be in that company of people because I like and respect what they do and who they are so much. But it is a space, I think, because of, you know, the institutions in America are what the institutions are, and they have been dominated by Caucasian majority culture for so long that it takes a deliberate effort for people to say, you know what, there are other people. And I've, I've, I asked this question at the beginning, too, because um, not that they're going to say, like, this is, a, this is an African-American's take on being an Enneagram 3. Like, my, my book's not an African-American's take on being an Enneagram 3, right? Right. Um, but it does show up. And like when they did the audiobook, they said, well, you can audition <laughs> to read the book. Well, I was so excited. I was like, well, do I get to read it? And they're like, well, you get to audition. I was just really too busy to put together an audition tape. But I said, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. But I do want a person of color to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ivy mean, was so incredibly great. They honored that. They found an incredible um, reader for that book. I, I think that was really a boon to the Enneagram discussion as this series will be, because it will highlight for people. No, like this might show up differently in your context. And my theory of the Enneagram, and I feel like I've just started to tell people that I've I've read enough, I've studied enough, I've talked enough, I've written enough now that I can have my own theories. Like I don't have to quote people anymore. Mm. Is that we're all seeking to be loved. 
and to be loved on a deep level. And the Enneagram helps explain that. So it shows up differently in different contexts and different cultures. Right. And there are different hurdles. Someone was telling me very, you know, a couple of years ago that if you were to explain the Enneagram to a lot of inner city kids who grew up, because the inner cities actually aren't that, aren't as bad as people think they are in terms of crime and violence. But if you were to explain the Enneagram to kids who lived in a gangland culture, that almost all the boys would identify as eights. Hmm. And that's because they feel like they have to, to survive, but they're not. Hmm. But if you're a four, imagine being a four on the Enneagram and having to identify as an eight just to survive, how exhausting that would be, how terrifying that would be day to day. And so the more voices who can give articulation to all of that, I think it's just better for the Enneagram discussion. And so I'm honored to be a part of it. I think it's going to help deepen that discussion Uh, and not in a way that wears itself on the sleeve. I've gotten a lot of feedback from the book and I've not gotten anything from anyone saying I'm white and I couldn't connect with this as a three because the motivation, the heart of it is the same. Wrapping up a little bit, could you tell us a little bit about what's ahead for you beyond this current Enneagram installment? What's next? Yeah, that's a great question. It all depend on when I'm able to get out of the house again. Uh, <laughs> um, but in, in January 2022, um, I have a, another project with IVP called Speaking by the Numbers, Enneagram Wisdom for Pastors, Teachers, and Communicators. And that's a pretty daunting task because it's just something that's never been done before. And I will probably get as much wrong as I get right in that, in that book, but it'll be, a, I think, a, an aid to the discussion and especially helping communicators and teachers. So we've got that going on. And then we'll see kind of after that, I'm looking at some different projects. My family owns uh, a significant parcel of land outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, we've had that land like, since post-Civil War. And I want to tell the story of how did we get it and what's the, what's the, uh, what's been the fallout of the, the blessing really of having that land and kind of doing the importance of, of place for people yeah. and what happens when we lose place and we, lo- and do we lose family in place? And so this summer I'll start working on that and maybe look to see if someone wants to publish it at some point. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Sean, so much for your time and being on our show today. We're, we're so excited to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, we need to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll talk with our next Enneagram Daily Reflections author, Marlena Graves. So stay tuned and thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. The world keeps changing at a dizzying pace. How can you stay current and discover biblical truths to meet today's challenges? Introducing Seminary Now a new online on-demand streaming service where you can learn from gifted teachers such as Brenda Salter McNeil. The world as God intended is a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic and multinational place. James Chung. What is the gospel? Is it just about where you go when you die? 
Isa McCulley. When we look at the injustice in the world, we're going to address the perennial issue of slavery. And we're going to talk about the ways in which the Bible was misused to justify the oppression of black and brown people. And there are so many more great teachers to learn from. Get a 20% discount off your subscription by using the code EVN2020 at seminarynow.com. That's EVN2020 at seminarynow.com. The world keeps changing. Don't stop learning. Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Ed Gilbreth. And with us today is our guest, Marlena Graves, author of The Way Up is Down and the new 40 Days of Being a Nine, which actually comes out February 23rd. And later in the show, we will share how you can receive a special discount on Marlena's books, as well as all of the books in the Enneagram Daily Reflections series that we are talking about in this episode. So welcome, Marlena. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's so good to be back with you all. I feel like I'm with some long lost friends. So. Yes, yes. So let's start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about your personal backstory, where you grew up, share a little bit with our listeners about your family origin and what you're doing now. Okay, so I was born in Puerto Rico. My mom's side of the family, I'm biracial. My mom's side of the family was from there. My first language was Spanish. You know, I learned English watching Sesame Street being around my dad, uh, my dad's white. We lived there just only a few years and he, he was in the military. So we moved to California for a little bit, not long. And then back to Northwestern Pennsylvania where my dad grew up. And I did go back to Puerto Rico for uh, one year when I was in fourth grade. I grew up in a bilingual household. Spanish was the, the language of the house, uh, but then also English in school. And so, I mean, my Abuelita, she couldn't really speak that much English at all. So if I want to communicate with her, then I have to speak Spanish. And I say Abuelita because as in a lot of communal cultures, my grandparents would, on my, on my mom's side, would kind of do a tour of family members. They'd stayed with us most of the time or across the street from us. Even my abuela was my roommate for many years. I have um, two brothers and a sister. So there was four kids in my family. I am the second we spent most of the time in Northwestern Pennsylvania, like I said, where my dad grew up. So it was like in Northern Appalachia. And we, we used to joke, we're the only Puerto Ricans or Spanish people on the census in the whole county, no, almost the whole county. <laughs> you know, I think there was maybe one other person with the last name of Figueroa, you know, that I'd like uh, wave to, but I mean, in the whole school. <laughs> and I think there might've been wow. a couple of African-Americans on one hand, you could count the people of color uh, in my school. And so, I, I mean, I tell a lot of people, Puerto Ricans come in all shapes and shades and sizes. My brother's darker than me. My younger brother's darker than me. I'm probably the lightest one in my family. I am often white passing. People think I'm Italian or something. But I've had things said to me because of where I'm from. And I've had, you know, my older brother especially be harassed by Border Patrol agents at the Canadian border and other places, thinking that he's Middle Eastern. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between your ethnic identity and your journey as a writer, how those two intertwine. I think that the longer I write and the older I get and the more I learn, the more I understand it. I didn't understand why I didn't always quite get jokes and like white jokes. I know this might be funny. I remember when I was in seminary, I told one of my friends in all seriousness, you know, I'm just telling you this because we're good friends. Can you explain this joke to me? If I don't get it, you know, can you explain these yeah. things? But I learned that I see, you know, I didn't say I grew up poor, but I did. I feel like I see the world 
from the ground up, maybe instead of from the top looking down that perspective. So I think that affects my writing and maybe how I come at the Enneagram. That's probably what affects my writing, I think. Well, speaking of the Enneagram, let's talk a little bit about that, how that came into your radar. I first heard of it was about 2010, around that time. You know, I've had people tell me unsolicited, oh, you're a four. Oh, maybe you're you're a two or maybe a one. I really had to learn more about it and figure out, okay, what am I? And the thing is, nines, we're so used to blending with other people and seeing the world from other people's perspective that we can't always see ourselves. I was like, how much of what am I thinking is what other people see, but what is my own perspective? What makes me mad or angry? What are my vices? Like, let's be honest about them, not tell myself things just to make myself feel better, you know, like, especially that kind of mentality where you know, you've heard it where the thing you're like, ew, really? I don't really want that to be my number because I don't want that to be me, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's how I felt about the nine. Well, speaking of being a nine, can you summarize to our listeners what that even means? What does it mean to be a nine? Just the basics, which um, those familiar with the Enneagram would know, but some not. Nines, they say, are peacemakers. They're good diplomats. And I saw that in my life. Hmm. I wanted, and I still want people on different sides to love one another and not go to war. (laughs) Nines are able to see the good and sometimes disparate sides. That doesn't mean that you ultimately don't make a decision. You're going to say you could, you know, get to the point where you're like, yeah, this is better than that. But nines are good at seeing the positives from different points of view. That's why they say nines are a lot of good diplomats because they can bring a lot of disparate sides to the table and say, okay, what do we have in common? Is there a way that we can bring about peace? And they're peacemakers because they want peace inside of them. And so nines will try to make peace in the outer world among relationships and you know, maybe on in an international level if they happen to be a diplomat, but also inside. And so nines will do whatever it takes to get peace. Some people are motivated because uh, they really want praise and i'm not saying nines don't want praise but what nines want the most is peace nines are also that's another thing they're very attuned to everything around them nature mm-hmm. people call uh, the nines mystics there's a certain intuition that nines have that they yeah. kind of figure out who people are the the negative th- thing about nine is for example if you're in a relationship with a nine and you're in a group they're that person they're like yeah wherever you want to go eat let's go eat because they just want to please people but got to the point where I'm like, I, sorry if I'm offending someone. I don't like seafood. That's a nine. Like I can <laughs> say, I don't like seafood. So yeah. anywhere else, let's go. If it's just a seafood <laughs> restaurant, I'm going to be in trouble. No red lobster for me. I love that. Right before you say that though, you apologize. Yeah. For offending anyone. <laughs> I'm afraid we're, we're going to lose all our seafood listeners here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, uh, you know that I'm healthy because I went out on a limb and I made that. I made yeah, my desires known. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but nines could be really upset and angry, but they don't let you know because they want to keep peace. So my husband, that has resulted in the past, like I'll just blow, like Mount, you know, St. Helens. And, and people are like, Marlena, you're such a patient, gentle person. You're probably the most patient one on the planet. Marlena. I'm like, I am not. I don't know why you say that because I'm boiling inside. You know, there was conflict. I might let it go longer than some people before I say something, but that's the negative of nines. Like you can explode. And then mm. you get angry, you blow your top, then you're fine. 
but that doesn't always go over well, you know, especially people are close to you because you're fine and it's over for you, but they're still reeling from your explosion. Um, and so, cause nines have that, they're in the anger triad. It's uh, eight, nine, and one. So we have this really angry emotion. But again, you know, if you hold anger inside or anything else like depression, it's not good for you. So it's funny cause you appear like you're a peacemaker yeah. um, and you want to make peace, but you also struggle with anger. <laughs> it's like conflicting inside. And maybe that's why we want peace so much. We're angry about something. We don't want to rock the boat. And so we kind of repress it, but then it makes us not well. So, well, you know, something we're curious about is the intersection of the Enneagram and our ethnic identity. And so I'm curious for you, what are ways that you experience being a nine differently because of your Puerto Rican heritage? I've been thinking about that. I think it's in a few ways. One is when I've read descriptions about how nines dress, they're like, nines are like kind of plain and boring. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? That does not describe me. I mean, I'm not saying I'm flamboyant, but I don't like to. (laughs) When I think of plain or whatever, that does not describe me. So Mm. I don't know if that applies to other people of color, but I like interesting things. Mostly usually my glasses or something. Um, Sometimes my color, uh, the color of the clothes I wear. It is very interesting to me. I don't know if it's ethnic or not. People, I mean, you know how people have stereotypes and labels, but they're like fiery Puerto Ricans. You know, you got to watch those Puerto Ricans. Uh, But then there are people like, Marlena, you're so gentle. I have that gentleness, maybe in that fire together, that maybe that's the intersection. But I also think that's part of the eight wing. When there's oppression and all the things that's been part of American culture since the beginning, when there's all that kind of stuff and I see stuff happening, I'm I don't like conflict, but I will stand up for the bully or if someone's being oppressed. But usually nine times out of 10, I'm like, okay, we got to do something about this. So maybe that's fiery intersection. I do want to say that I think that nines, because I'm not in a Puerto Rican community right now. I, you know, I'm not living in an ethnic community and kind of out on my own here. I'm really curious how it would manifest. Nines would manifest, you know, maybe we would be more easygoing ones of the whole community, just like others. So I just think, though, from my perspective where I'm standing, it's hard to say exactly, but but maybe Puerto Rican nines are more flamboyant than non. So I like that because I think you're speaking into the stereotypes of what nines are. And mm-hmm. I like that you're saying it doesn't mean you're boring or passive. There are so many layers to what it means to be a nine. And then the intersection of being Puerto Rican, of course, mm-hmm. there's probably even more layers to that. So we know that there are different reactions to the Enneagram, right? You meet people who love it, and then you meet people who don't love it. (laughs) And so can you share with us, have you ever gotten criticisms for being connected with the Enneagram? And if you have, what are those critiques and how have you weathered that, especially being a nine? I don't want to present myself as a typical nine. So nine, we all have similar traits, but we're not all the same. So that's something that I hope that listeners not only on the healthy spectrum, but yes, there are certain characteristics that we have, but it's not going to be expressed the same way. So if you're listening and you're like, oh man, I'm not exactly like that. I'm not sure. Nines come in all shapes and sizes and ethnicities. You know, I first heard it not in the circles that I usually run in like criticism about a nine, but I did hear someone that said you're adopting a pagan kind of system when you talk about the Enneagram. And then I heard someone else that uh, actually interviewed me about it and said, well, it's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, that's right. There's a lot of things 
that aren't in the Bible. Eyeglasses are not in the Bible, you know? So (laughs) there's a lot of things that are not biblical, nor is like the vast knowledge base we have in medicine or science. It's not in the Bible. To say it's not biblical, that's a weak argument because there's a lot of things that aren't in scripture. And I see the Enneagram as a tool. Christians have often used and repurposed things to uh, shed light, just like early Christians used like Platonic philosophy or whatever in the ideas. When you read in John 1 about the logos, those are philosophical ideas of the ancient world. And in scripture, the disciples and other people in the culture that they were in, they used the ideas of their day. And so today, the same thing with the Enneagram. I mean, if you have a television, if you have a phone, if you have a computer, I mean, that's not in the Bible, but you use it. That's kind of what I would say. I see it as a tool to understand ourselves better. It is not the gospel, but to make arguments about criticize it because it's not equivalent to scripture. I don't think anyone seriously thinks it's equivalent to scripture or that it's the gospel. So Marlena, this isn't your first book. You re, uh, actually received a CT book award recently for your book, The Way Up is Down. Big congrats on that. Thank you. And you've done tons of other writing as well. But what was unique for you about working on this particular project? You know, people think that I'm a vulnerable in my writing. And I think that's true because I feel the only way we can be healed and be better is by telling the truth. And I need to tell the truth about myself. And, and that's what I was doing when I wrote this Enneagram book. I felt extremely vulnerable writing this book, Hmm. like extremely just saying a lot about my personal life. And someone might be like, well, Marlena, you do talk about your life, your life um, in your other books. Yes, I do. But I feel like this is daily reading about, the things that I'm not proud of in me, you know, the things that need to be more Christ-like, I'm like, oh, this is hanging it all out to dry for people to see. As an Enneagram, whatever number that you are, you have to be able to tell the truth about yourself in order to get healthy and, and do well. And so I really had to talk about things that one is like just conflicts or conflicts with myself, things that made me feel uncomfortable. And so... <laughs> That's makes it different. And so it was constantly holding up the mirror to me for uh, the 40 days. And I'm like, you know, I always say as writers, we might say, oh, yeah, people know a lot more about us than we do about them. And this is even more so. So see, I see you as having a, a bit of an activist voice in the way that you you stand for justice and you speak out against injustice. Is, is that a reflection of the eight wing in you or are you having to push against your type to take on those types of stances? Lynn, I used to ask the Lord, Lord, why it'd be so easy for me to live um, an easy Christianity where I just kept my head down. I mean, I don't even know what it is to live a life like that. <laughs> and, and maybe, you know, being a person of color too. But I think that that challenging is probably the eight wing, but I just get a fire in my bones when I see if someone just lies to you outright or sells their soul for money. I'm like, are you kidding? You know, and you you purport to be a leader of Christianity. I know everyone's around you scared to say something, but someone needs to say it. And it's not always me, but every now and then I will. And the thing is, it's not like I'm out in a, Sorry, I'm not out, Ed, and my Myla to bring people down. I really don't want to bring people down. Just repent and be happy in your circle of influence and do what's right in your circle of influence. But I, in some cases, I think no one says anything to you ever because they're scared of the repercussions. I think I am an activist voice. And I feel like I can also say that, too, because I think 
I have credibility in that area. And if I, Lord forbid, if I fall, right, I have need people to keep me accountable, but I've had plenty of chances to sell out and I haven't sold out yet. And God forbid that I ever do. <laughs> but I think that's maybe a nine, eight. And that's where Ian Warren Cron and Suzanne Stabile said in the road back to you that nine, eights are the most conflicted because they want peace. But then there's that like challenge of oppression and inequality constantly vying in you. Like, should I say something now or not? Should I let this one go or not? Even as I'm hearing that, it's making me redefine what longing for peace means, right? Because when I think of peace, it's oh, nice and quiet and everyone's Mm -hmm. chill. But if you think about it, the fight for justice is the fight for peace, right? Ultimately. And so it's not like you're pushing up against yourself. A nine to stand up for justice is because I want peace, right? And it does press into that, which I think I haven't heard that before until you were talking about just even your passions and wanting to stand up and wanting to speak out. It's because you long for peace, right? And sometimes that's a loud fight, but it's still it's still a longing for peace. And so that's a really unique way of thinking about nines. Yeah, be peacemakers, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. I'm not just talking about myself, but you have to make peace. You know, I, sometimes I have this ideal and Sean's like, yeah, you know, we're married monastics, Marlena. Like I'd like to be like a Thomas Merton at a monastery, but I'm not to disavow my daughters. I don't mean that, but I feel like I could live a life where I'm at a monastery very easily. And I think that's where the nine, eight comes in. It swings between contemplation, like that silence and solitude and that peace and taking time to be with the Lord and to be rejuvenated or with friends. And that gives me the energy to do the action. I think it allows me to love people when I get rejuvenated and then can go out. If my conscience is saying you have to say something and you don't, then I, you know, I want to have a clean conscience before God. Marlena, I'm wondering if you could give readers a a little taste of your voice, your writing in this devotional. Is there a selection that you would want to share if we asked you to? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to read day three, which is titled Out With It. And here it goes. Why do you hold back? A mentor asked. You have so much more to offer, she exclaimed. The same question and comment has been echoed by others close to me in some form throughout different intervals of my life. I was surprised they had picked up on my holding back. The simple reason is I fear running over people with whatever power, intellect, skills, and abilities I have. I know what it is like to be run over and rendered invisible. I don't want to do the same to others. The problem is I held back for so long that I inadvertently rendered myself invisible. That is a trap in which nines find ourselves. Unlike others who have to practice keeping their mouths shut, we have to practice speaking up. We have to be very intentional about it or we'll regress. Maybe there are reasons we fail to speak our opinion. Maybe we don't have an opinion. We simply don't know what we think. Or perhaps we can see both sides of an issue, seeing both sides most often has something positive to offer. We fear coming down on one side will displease, offend, and or alienate others. And that runs counter to our natural disposition of gathering people together in unity. We want everyone to get along, to see the good in others, despite our differences. We get along with a diverse cross-section of individuals from across the political, religious, class, and ethnic spectrum, even if we're not on the same page about everything. Why can't others? So out with it. Let's offer our opinions and stances if we have them. I know it's uncomfortable and hard, but we have contributions to make to the world. We have God's gifts to steward. When we fail to speak up, 
we are doing ourselves and the world a disservice. Don't worry. I'm not advocating that we vocalize everything that crosses our minds. That's foolishness. But I am saying we need to speak up much more than we have historically been comfortable. It's okay to say, I don't know, on controversial issues where we haven't made up our minds yet. It is okay to be on the journey, whether or not one side or the other militates at your current inability to stake your claim. That is spiritual and intellectual honesty, but it is dishonest to not speak up for fear of rocking the boat or displeasing another. I feel like you're telling me about myself, Marlena. Are you a nine, Ed? At least that's what I've been told. But as I listen to uh, you throughout this episode, I go back and forth. It's like, yeah, that's me. But then it's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you what you are, of course, but we all manifest a little bit differently. So, and maybe, (laughs) I mean, it could be if you are nine, you might be a nine one. And then there's Marlena out here like, woo! (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for being on our show, Marlena. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy. We need to take one more break, but when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Gideon Sang, author of 40 Days of Being a Seven. But first, it's time for our Behind the Book segment, where we pull back the curtain and find out more of the story behind the scenes at IVP. Today, you'll hear more of the backstory from Suzanne Stabil, who serves as the series editor for the Enneagram Daily Reflections. Suzanne Stabile, and I'm a public teacher and an author and a wife and a pastor's wife, which are two different things, and a parent and a grandparent. I co-authored The Road Back to You with Ian Cron, and I wrote The Path Between Us, and I just turned in my third book. I've been teaching the Enneagram for the last 25, 26, 27 years. I think the best way to talk about it is that it is an ancient wisdom, spiritual help or maybe I would say it's ancient spiritual wisdom that was handed down orally for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it is about nine different ways of seeing. That's the best definition I have. It's about nine ways of taking in information from the environment and nine ways of making sense out of that information and deciding what to do. People who struggle with it, I think, struggle with it because they think it is limiting rather than expansive. And in fact, it expands self-knowledge and self-awareness. And people often ask me, what's dangerous about the Enneagram? And my answer is that you take it to be more than it is. It's just one spiritual wisdom tool. And frankly, it's much better when it's used in tandem with others. I'm a big proponent of contemplative prayer, and I am a big proponent of reading and study. And if you put all of those things together, along with other spiritual practices that we could name, then then you have a foundation to begin to build for spiritual transformation, which I think is the goal for everybody. And I think that we all have enough work to do on ourselves and if something can be this helpful then why not why not use this so one of the things that i'm so excited about in relationship to the daily reflection series 
is, and I, I've said it so many times, I can never say for another number something about them that they can't say better themselves. And it has to do with nuance, usually. And what happens with the Daily Reflection series is that in terms of my definition of nine ways of seeing, you get to spend 40 days reflecting on life or scripture or a good quote with someone who sees the way you see. So that's level one that I think is so valuable. But level two that I think is so valuable about this series is that the authors are culturally diverse and racially diverse, and they come from diverse backgrounds as Christians. So with all of that diversity, there is a window into people who are not like me. And I'm a relationship person, and I don't think I'm going to get to the kind of understanding that I seek regarding racial diversity and cultural diversity without us understanding difference around a story. And this series offers that. Your Enneagram number is not determined by behavior. It's determined by your motivation. And sometimes motivation is determined by culture. I think we all need to nurture space for difference. And that includes authors of color. Right? They have to set the authors of color have to set the table for me the same way I have to set the table for authors of color. And this series can be the beginning of doing that. When people ask me how to use the books, here's what I'm going to say get somebody of every number and do a year long program and read all nine books together and include as much cultural and racial diversity in your group as you can. Because every single reading is a discussion starter. So it's more than you could ever need to get together and get to know one another as Christians who see the world in nine different ways and from nine different perspectives. You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Myla Kim. Today, we've been talking with authors of color in our Enneagram Daily Reflection series. And so up next, we are speaking with Gideon Sang, author of 40 Days of Being a Seven. So welcome, Gideon. Thanks, Myla. It's good to be here. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background? So where did you grow up and what is your family origin? All of that. Yeah, so I have a mixed and adventurous path living as an Asian American in Austin. This is how I describe what it's like to be a person of color in Austin. This happens once a year in Austin. I remember sitting in a little bodega called Quickie Picky, and I was like working outside, it's a beautiful spring day. And then I see this white dude staring at me. And so I kind of look up, we make eye contact, I nod, maybe I know him, he looks back at me. Five minutes later, he's like still like eyes bearing down on me. And I'm like, so I just wave, and he took it as like a sign of he wants to come talk to me. And I was like, oh, no, please, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> so he stands over. And the first question he asks, 
is the question people of color love to be asked. He goes, where are you from? <laughs> so I was like, oh, I like to play this game. So I, I go, I'm from Austin. I've lived here for 20 years. He goes, no, 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 where are you from? I go, you're right. Uh, I lived in Detroit before that. <laughs> he goes, I don't know where you're from. I was like, yeah, actually Chicago. And then he just kept going. I was like, I can play for a long time. It was Toronto, <laughs> right. and then Calgary, <laughs> South America, Calgary, Hong Kong, Saskatoon. Oh, <laughs> so those are all the places I've been. <laughs> I left Canada in 95 and I've been in Austin for 21 years now. I want to talk a little bit about your ethnic identity journey. And so for our listeners who don't know, can you tell them what your ethnicity is? And then also what that relationship has been in your journey as becoming a writer? Yeah, so my mother is from Hong Kong. My father is from southern China, arrived in Hong Kong as a refugee. And they immigrated to Canada, where I was born, in this large poppin' metropolis called Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which I think is hilarious, by the way. I think immigrants landing, they're probably like Toronto, Vancouver, Saskatoon, probably about the same. <laughs> so, uh, so that's where I was born. So the intersection, I think, is I've never wanted to write. Okay, that's not true. I've wanted to and not wanted to. I've wanted to, but found every reason not to. So in terms of, I think, my upbringing, there's like a couple of stories that I think inform it. Um, I played a lot of basketball growing up. And I remember wanting to make my father proud. And he was busy, didn't come to very many games. And he came to one. I was a junior in high school. Uh, I played really well, but didn't play perfectly. So I think I, I scored 16 points in the first half, which is uh, quite a bit, the most I'd ever scored. And then I was so excited he was there. I fouled out in the first half. Oh. But I, I, I was just wanting him to be proud of me. Yeah. And on the car ride home, the whole conversation was, why did you foul out? How, how can I not foul so much? And so tied to my family of origin, tied to my ethnic identity, for me, carrying the need to do things well and to not try something, if I'm not going to be good at it, um, has always been a barrier. It's a human creative barrier for anyone, but I think there's a little added weight. That. And then how I ended up writing my book was uh, my life fell apart in 2019, like everything, everything got, um, and was barely, barely staying above water, yeah. which was hard, but I think in hindsight, a gift now. Uh, have you heard Wendell Berry's poem? So a stream that's impeded, that's when it finds its song. And life was helping me find its song, but it was, it was overwhelming. And while life was unbelievably overwhelming, I got an invitation to write a book. <laughs> so I think this is what happened. I think that the book was always meant to be, and perhaps me exploring at least what it means to be a writer. And my life had exhausted me enough my inner critic enough. I was just tired. Where when when the opportunity presented itself, I was just here and now. And I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll do it. So you've written this book about the Enneagram. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and uh, connecting with the Enneagram and how you discovered it and what led to this 
this place where you are today as a contributor to this, this series? As per my Enneagram type, sevens, that's what I am. We don't like to get boxed in. It feels confining, restricting. And so all typology systems felt like that to me. So for years I had heard, you know, hey, you check out the Enneagram, you do an Enneagram test. And I was like, ah, I don't want a box. I got enough boxes. I don't need another box. <laughs> so probably 10 years ago, I was at a leadership training weekend. And on the first day, they put us through some typology tests. Did the Myers-Briggs, which I was familiar with, the NFP. And then I had heard of the Enneagram. I was like, fine. I don't really know what it is. I'll do it. I cared so little that I don't remember what I typed at. <laughs> probably <laughs> probably something. <laughs> I was like, whatever. Here's, here's the results. Go, go, go. And then I you know, was leading that community. We had a board retreat probably five years ago now, six years ago. And at the beginning, we have a spiritual director on staff. And he was like, hey, what do you think about taking the team through the Enneagram? And I was like, okay. Seems like a good space for us to be a little more reflective, introspective before we go into some external future-oriented work. And then this time, because it was my community, I just had to be more engaged, I guess. <laughs> but still still subtly rolling my eyes in the back of my head. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then um, before we finished the typing, he listed famous sevens or f- famous celebrities of each type. And I remember it came to the four and they listed people like Bob Dylan and Alan Watts. I'm like, good God, I want to be a four. (laughs) And then it came to the sevens and it was like Miley Cyrus and Robert Downey. I was like, I do not, I do not want to be a seven. Uh, And I left that weekend as a seven. Reluctantly, I was like, this guy, this has got to be wrong. I need more tests. I need to read some books. (laughs) And then over the next few years, um, I was like, okay, fine. I'm a seven. So it kind of came to terms with right, that. Right. Tell us, for, for those of our listeners who are new to the Enneagram, what does it mean to be a seven? You're a seven. Tell us what that is exactly. Yeah. So the more realistic, less kind way, I would call us the blind optimist okay. or the squirrel chaser. <laughs> uh, <laughs> squirrel you know, chase shiny yeah. objects right right um and the more kind would be you know the adventure the epicure the person who's mm-hmm. trying to to mine the fullness of life um right. to experience it to really live it and how, do, how does that sort of play out in your own journey and your own experience what what kinds of things about you would someone look at, someone would knowledgeably would look at and say, ah, yeah, he's a seven. I'll, I'll just choose something embarrassing. If you look at my Instagram, you would think it's a textbook Instagram for what a seven should look like. It's adventures, okay. it's trips, it's exploration, it's right. with friends, with beautiful places. It's like mining beauty and life and travel. Collecting yeah. things, yeah. Collecting things, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And then you'll see hints of frustrated idealism, which is a seven thing. You want this world to be you know, a certain way, and then it's not. 
I'm curious, you said something earlier, how it was in 2019 that your life completely fell apart, and then you were invited to write about what it looks like to be a seven, which I feel like is the complete conflict of what it means to be a seven, right? You weren't in a season of life where you're living it up, and you're like, I'm a seven, let me tell you about all the great things about life. It was like your life fell apart, and then you had to write about that experience. And so how was that for you? Or how did you resonate with being a seven as you were forced to write about a seven in a painful season? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. So one of the markers of a seven is we run from our pain. Mm-hmm. We'll do anything to avoid sadness and grief and pain. And it took me a long time, not by choice. You know, life chooses you at some point. I think that's what grace is. These things you don't wish upon anyone, but having come through it, I wish the grace of the fruit of that upon everyone, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So as a seven, basically, all those things I was experiencing were there. And when you're young, in the first half of your life, you just have enough energy to avoid it. Or when you face it, you can just bounce back. Mm -hmm. Then as you age, those mechanisms stop working. And then at some point, you either have to be confronted with what your life actually is, or you double down on your protectors and managers that just keep you afloat, if that makes sense. So a lot of what sevens look like, not all, when it looks like, for I'll just speak to myself, when it looks like I'm having fun, I'm traveling, I'm with people, I'm at a party, oftentimes I'm the most sad. It's the way that I'm running from my grief and sadness. That's what sevens look like. When we're depressed, it looks like we're having fun. Mm. So in my estimation, why the book presented itself in the season of my life that it did, I was fully here with all of my life, not just the externalities, but my internal universe, not just what's beautiful and good, but decades of grief and pain. And for the, it was really the first time in my life, it's first season in my life where some of that stuff surfaced. And this is where the Enneagram's helpful. I now know that, hey, I've been, I've been running from that. I could continue, but I was just ready. I was tired in a way that I now see as a gift. And I would sit with my pain. I would sit with parts of my life that I was putting an optimistic rosy lens on to try to avoid seeing what really was in my life with relationship, with work stuff, with just a lot of it. So it wasn't easy. It didn't feel like a choice, but I think you might get at least an honest depiction from what I was experiencing in the fullness of life as a seven from the high highs and then a lot of pain as well. And so I think. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about um, how your ethnicity intersects with the, the subject matter of this book? Are there ways that the Enneagram has helped you understand your, your Chinese heritage or vice versa? Yeah. So uh, I was telling the story of how I finally accepted my sevenness. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fine. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I was in Santa Fe with a few friends, spent a weekend with Richard Rohr, and we were going through multiple things, but he started with the Enneagram, and he's considered you know, one of the founding fathers of at least the modern Western 
version that's been brought to the masses. So we were with them, we did a morning and then there was like a coffee break. We're in this small little hotel in Santa Fe. It was like eight of us there. Uh, people were drinking coffee, just kind of stretching their legs. And he was sitting there in this chair, just kind of quietly. And I walked up to him and he was like, hey, Gideon. It's like, so um, what do you think on the Enneagram? What, what type are you? And I go, um, Richard, I'm, uh, I think I'm a seven. And he goes, huh. Hmm. <laughs> and then I walked away. I was like, what the? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it really seemed like he didn't think I was a seven. Mm. And it threw me into this existence. I was like, who, <laughs> who am I? Okay. So from that, I think uh, I'm an Asian seven. And most of the literature is pretty Western, pretty white. And so there's a little bit of difference that comes with that, that I think he probably didn't have as much exposure to. And then I grew up with two layers of repression. Uh, I grew up in shame-based cultures, both Protestant fundamentalism. And so everything of what it meant to be alive and an individual, just push it down, just shh. And then I grew up in a Confucian-based culture, which is also very shame-based and don't stand out, fit into the community. So my sister is a six, which is a loyalist. If you talk about a structure for a six to thrive in, that was perfect for her, right? She could play the game. She could fit the roles, wear the right hats, get the right right degrees. And it's just a nice ecosystem for her. Mm. And as a seven, who's wanting life, wanting new experiences, wanting out of the tribe, what's beyond my tribe. So sometimes not in an unkind way to my parents. I think this was the model of parenting, at least in my generation. It's a little bit like when you get a puppy and you need to break its spirit so that it's trainable. (laughs) I, I think a lot of parenting work like that. If I can just, if I can just break his will my job is going to be so much easier the next 18 years. <laughs> it's, it's very functional. So I think by the time I got to Richard, I was an Asian seven. I think a lot of that, that's beautiful and expressed in my own way. And then it's been a journey of picking off those scabs of repression. Oh, this is a really beautiful part of me that just wasn't allowed to exist. And, and it's me. It's the most core parts of me. And okay, this is a little scary, but I'm gonna gonna kind of spread my wings a little. Did you coin that an Asian seven, or is that a pretty commonly expressed uh, (laughs) idea? I don't know. If you've not heard it from anyone else, I'll take credit. Okay, (laughs) I I have no idea. I like that. I think we're we're gonna use that term from now on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love what you're saying because so my husband is a seven. But he's also Korean-American, and he says mm-hmm. all the stereotypes of a seven doesn't feel like him, right? Mm-hmm. And he's always like, I don't know why or what that is, but it just didn't fit. But in his own experiences, he's like, I think I am a seven. Like, I'm of all the yeah. numbers, this is what makes sense. And so I think it's kind of what you're speaking on is there's this cultural layer to it that makes it a little bit confusing when you caricaturize a seven and then you don't look like it or you don't smell like it, right? But yeah, in, yeah. internally, you you feel that, right? And so 
I'm curious, can you speak to our listeners who are people of color who feel like the Enneagram right now in its current stage is more of a dominant culture thing, right? The tool is is usually used in the majority culture. And so can you speak into how do you how did you navigate that? And how did you stick to your guns? And Richard, I am a seven, even though you don't believe me. What does that look like for people of color? Yeah, that's a great question. Because even your husband's experience, I can relate to that deeply. So if you think about a book that's coming through the lens of white men, so you think about a seven who's a white man, Anything he thinks he wants to do, he's just going to do it. And then the world's just going to be like, oh, you, you're allowed to do it. <laughs> and it tur- <laughs> turns out turns out most of us, that's not our existence, yeah. you know, yeah. which is both a curse and a blessing, right? Because mm. I don't think we should all go through this world doing whatever we want without any acknowledgement or consideration of the impact it has on other people. And then especially people with less power, you know what I mean? So that boundary is a gift. But then I think at least, especially for seven, because sevens are just so explorative and adventurous and wanting to try and pursue beauty. Um, for me, at least, as a Chinese Canadian, Cantonese Canadian, it's been a lot of giving myself permission and then having compassion for myself for some of the fear that comes up when I'm wanting to explore and try some of these things. But I think it's absolutely true. I think it's come through. So you know how hip hop had to come through for the dominant culture, right? It was an art form um, in the black community, but it took the Beastie Boys, you know? (laughs) It needed needed a white, easy to listen vehicle to bring it to the mass. Little vanilla ice, yeah. Little vanilla ice, yeah, (laughs) right. And I would say the same things happened with the Enneagram. So I hope that more women, men, or just anyone on the spectrum of people of color can really give language to their experience and the diverse ways that this is expressed. Because we've always said that. That's what Enneagram people say. It's like primary colors. There's not just nine types. There's primary colors. And it offers the diversity, the infinite expression, right? And I hope that with time, we allow more people of color and their actual point of view and their lived experiences can be heard. Can you share a little bit about your journey of writing 40 Days of Being a Seven? How has that experience been? Has it been hard trying to express to people what it's like being a seven? Or has it been pretty simple as you've come to know the Enneagram? It's both. So it's hard in so far as writing is just hard. Right. The craft, the craft of it is solitary and vulnerable. It's a vulnerable art form. Um, no, in the sense that I think it was a gift where my inner critic was just so tired. So do you know the comedian Neil Brennan? He started, he co-created the Chappelle show with Dave Chappelle. Okay. And I was hearing him talk about the inner critic. And he was like, if you met someone that was saying the things your inner critic was saying, <laughs> you, you would not be their friend. You'd punch him in the face, you know? So I was just in a season where I was so exhausted. The inner critic was just like, couldn't, you know, didn't have that much space. And my only hope when I was writing, because it was very personal, right? 
It's 40 days of my own point of view. So I didn't need to be an expert. I didn't need a lot of cognitive knowledge about other things. I just needed to be honest from the lens of the Enneagram. I guess I needed that, but just my actual experience. And so for me, the hard and easy part was I just wanted it to sound like my voice and I wanted to be fully as true to my experience as possible. So I just wrote it. And then I had to go back. So there's like a few stories in there because the book's not out yet. (laughs) And being from a familial culture, you don't really say things publicly about your family of origin. You just don't do that. I kind of wrote a book about it. But not in ways that I, you know, I love my parents and they did the best they could and they're human beings, which is lovely. And part of the beauty of the Enneagram, it gives me some handles to kind of go pretty deep into some of those wounds. And so now that I've written it, I need to still, I haven't yet said, Hey, mom and dad. So by the way, I wrote a book. (laughs) They don't know yet. And there's some stories in there. I love you. It's, it's my own work and journey, and I'm thankful for how you love me. It doesn't change how much I respect and love you. So there might be a couple stories you might want to like not read. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's one of my sister, too. And that'll be an easier conversation. There's one where she slaps me in the face when I was a teenager. <laughs> she's, she's since apologized many times. <laughs> but in hindsight, with the lens of the Enneagram, it was... Uh, kind of a formative way I go through the world. I'm there's there's this way if I feel like as a seven I stand as myself in this world. There's a younger part of me that ducks. Mm. And it feels like someone's gonna slap me, if that makes sense. And that comes from that experience. I love like your story of even telling your parents and letting them know and having this side conversation with your sister. And I think it speaks a lot into what we've been talking about, the Enneagram, but also that layer of culture and all the different nuances of what it means to be a person of color. What are your hopes for this book? Who do you see reading it and how do you see them experiencing it? My hopes are that through the series, like most things that are important, It's more important to live it and experience it than to just know it and talk about it, right? And I think the Enneagram can be a system because once you get in, it's pretty fun. It's dynamic. There's a lot of nuances. Um, It can become just this cognitive system of introspection you can talk about it and be into it as a form of avoiding it. Hmm. And I think this series, it starts with the experience of that person of that number. Mm -hmm. So you're getting lived experience. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully that will spur other people to connect to their own lived experience or to ponder, reflect as they're living life. How's that, how that plays out. And so I think when I was writing the book, the more specific I can be to my experience, which is a pretty weird, you know, Cantonese Canadian who lives in Texas. Those are a bunch of weird cultures, right? But rather than trying to connect at a broad level, I just wrote to as narrow a point of view as I could. 
and just trust my humanity and divinity will connect to the humanity and divinity of others. Well, thank you so much, Gideon, for just your time being with us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our earlier guests too, Sean Palmer and Marlena Graves. It was great to have them on the show as well. We also want to let everyone know that there are still more guests to come who have written for this devotional collection. So stay tuned for season two as we feature even more authors of color from the Enneagram Daily Reflections series. And now as we close out our first season, we wanted to share that you can find all of these devotionals at ivypress.com. And if you use the code EVN40, you can get 40% off and free U.S. shipping. So visit our site to get a great deal on any of the Enneagram Daily Reflections or on any book we have featured by authors of color this season. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producer is Helen Lee, and our sound engineer is Jonathan Clausen. If you are enjoying our show, please share about it with your friends and review and recommend us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And we love getting your feedback, so get in touch with us with your comments, critiques, or questions. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Every Voice Now, or you can email us at evn at ivypress.com. And join us next time for another inspiring episode of Every Voice Now.